Welcome to Potadelphia. My name is Dave Diorio. You can find me on Twitter at fat underscore lobster. And I'm joined by two guys who just like to say Mickey Morandini. What's up, Chuck and Gene? I miss <laughs> you guys. Yeah, miss you too. Happy Easter to all those who celebrate. Happy Passover to all those who celebrate. Imagine it's not a big Egyptian holiday, but that's neither here nor there. Um, when talking about Harry Callis, you know, I think it was the midday show that put out there, what player do you think of? And it's either Michael Jack Schmidt or Mickey Morandini. Like, he, he broke it down how to pronounce the guy's yeah. name. And it stays with me to this day of what was a good for a year or two player um speaking of me my name is chuck ciders you can find me on twitter at chuck ciders you can find the show at potadelphia and i'm gene z like you can find me on twitter at producer gene and the biggest squabble in uh pandemic land that happened in my house was i got very angry at my wife because she couldn't tell the difference between john crock and darren dalton <gasps> Wait, wait, what? What? Oh, yeah. my. She walked into the room. John Crump mm -hmm. was at bat, and she said, Oh, look, it's Darren Dalton. And I said, Oh, hell no, it's not. Well, they have the same, like, back of the helmet, like, hair situation. Which, which was her argument, and I said, yes, but Darren Dalton is a heartthrob, um, <laughs> and John Crump is uh, some guy that escaped from a beer league. All right. So we're going to get, uh, by the way, uh, another another great uh, Harry Callis is uh, Lenny Dykstra, the dude. <laughs> when, you have to, when you put in both of them together, Lenny Dykstra, the dude. Yeah. Uh, uh, but we're going to talk a lot of 93 fills today. Um, but first, we have uh, some more Phillies sports news that we need to get to. And that is of uh, of one Roy Halladay. Some news came out about what was going on up in the uh, up in the azure-colored sky over the Gulf of Mexico that fateful day. Are you channeling Harry there, like to make it all dramatic and poetic? Because I think he did a good job. Um, and we'll throw out this caveat: I believe the full report um, from the uh, the I don't know what it is the aeronautics institute or whatever regulates this shit space uh, police. the what police space police space police the air police i thought you said geese police which exists and they get the flock out and Ooh. okay apparently like that's not a life right to everybody else but it was <laughs> to me um but no uh roy halliday beloved former um Toronto uh, Blue Jay, a, a occasional Philadelphia Philly. Um, some more news came about his state of mind and his judgment before his fatal accident. And, you know, word came out in the past that, you know, he had certainly had chemicals in his system um, before. And, you know, I think we all thought of many a pro athlete who took medication to deal with pain and then maybe that became an addiction or whatnot. Um, the information I'm looking at now coming from the guardian um, has to say that Halliday had amphetamine levels about 10 times 
the therape uh, therapeutic levels in his blood, along with a high level of morphine and an antidepressant that can uh, impair judgment. And also, uh, based on eyewitnesses, uh, he was essentially performing stunts. He had posted on Twitter um, about the plane he was flying um, on the day he died. Um, this was not the day he died, but it was about the same plane. I keep telling my dad the Icon A5 low over water is like flying a fighter jet. His response is, I am flying a fighter jet. Yeah, and didn't someone say he was like doing a loop or he was trying to do a loop? Well, I think he was. I think he, uh, the impression that I get, and this is now again off of the report that I was reading, but from something I had read er earlier, was he was essentially dive bombing the water and pulling up the last moment. Uh, he got close to houses and. I don't know if it was a loop-de-loop -loop that he was trying, but it was really like sort of skimming the water. Chuck, can you, know, you give us a definition between a loop and a loop-de-loop? -loop? Well, a loop would be a single 360. Uh -huh. A loop-de-loop -loop would be a 360 and at least a 180. Um, I don't mean to get too technical on the podcast, but a um, a super-duper looper? Uh -huh. Um, should only be attempted by professionals on a rickety uh, roller coaster in Hershey, Pennsylvania. I was going to say, uh, that's my son's first inverted coaster experience was the Super Duper Looper at Hershey Park. Which should really be called the Super Duper Loop. It's only one. Uh, is it? Well, my okay, memory I, 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 from I, I, like 30 years ago says it's only one loop, but... Yeah, maybe they expanded uh, since I, I don't remember. I don't, anyway. I, I don't know either. But Roy Halliday would, because apparently he was a thrill seeker amphetamines addict. Um, well, this makes me wonder. Do you think, you know, he was doing amphetamines during his career? I would imagine. He threw a lot that, of complete games. I would imagine that he, he did. I mean, how how far removed was his death from his retirement? You know, he retired around mid-December of 2013. I know because I was in Disney World with my wife and I got an alert that he was traded to the Blue Jays and they didn't mention that it was, you know, the a one-day trade so he can retire as a Blue Jay. Um, But so that's when he retired. And when did he pass away? What, 2017? So that, that's... Yet, a, so I will take his word for that. Um, I think it was late 2017 or early 2018. It was, but like yeah. I mean, he 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 was still a relatively novice aviator, right? I mean, like he didn't he hasn't logged thousands and thousands of flight hours by any means, right? Uh, not that I know, but I mean, I really don't know. Yeah, like I, he, I, I just think this is like I. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to speculate and I, you know, I don't want to uh, like kick dirt on anyone's grave or anything, but you know, obviously this is a troubled situation. Yeah. Um, th there's addiction problems going on there, potentially depression. I mean, you're putting people's lives aside from your own in danger with these actions. And I don't know, like the more we find out about this, the less of a, a tragedy it becomes 
in the sense of like, you know, pitching great dies in a horrible plane accident and more of uh, something deeper and darker. Yeah, it goes from the common use of tragedy to the Greek sense of tragedy. Like, you know, in your classical tragedies, your downfall was brought about by your own actions. And, you know, we too often use the phrase tragedy to mean like an innocent person, you know, has bad luck or, you know, suffers random chance. And it seems like it went from that definition of tragedy to Roy was making some bad decisions, you know, be it, you know, an addiction that started with painkillers, be it something to address depression. Um, One article I read alluded to marital problems, um, and I have nothing to say there. I mean, obviously, I don't know, but he was taking chances. This wasn't some hey, I'm going to fly a plane in my retirement, you know, for a fun pastime and oops, here's an accident that, you know, that that takes away a fan favorite way too soon. Now it seems like an adrenaline junkie, a, a, a competitor focused his competitive spirit in the wrong direction. And all that's conjecture, but it seems to be more of a... You know, he was more than a casual part of his own demise. You know, Roy Halliday, say what you want, think what you want, definitely seemed to play an active role in his own passing. And it seems like we are lucky that he didn't crash into a house or take anyone else with him. So I guess the thing to ask here is if we resume play, for the 2020 baseball season, one of the events on the calendar is the Roy Halladay uh, number retirement ceremony. Am I, am I correct in, in that? Is that was scheduled for this this summer? Um, you know, by the Phillies' definition, he is in the Baseball Hall of Fame. That is sort of the benchmark for getting your number retired as a, as a Philly. Do you think that you would, as a organization— rejudicate this decision since you have more information now and it's 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 you know the the genie isn't necessarily out of the out of the bottle yet um and how do you think the fans react either way i mean i I, i've never been a a huge supporter of retiring his number uh from the phillies so i i wouldn't be i wouldn't be opposed to reconsidering that i don't think that they will because it it seems like and yeah i don't know because we haven't really been in the sports like conversation very much you know as a society lately so i don't really know what the pulse of how everyone feels about this really is i mean i i don't know i i I would venture a guess that most phillies fans still love roy halliday and and would like to see his number retired that's my guess that would be my guess as well, but the, you know, our current circumstance, you know, presents the Phils with a really great opportunity to, to put it on the back burner and then maybe never do it. Yeah, I mean, you you know, as a as an organization, you're super stingy with retiring numbers 
anyway. Yeah. And you have the Nationals are not going to do a banner raising or presenting rings, which I kind of disagree with the presenting rings, until fans are in the stadiums, you know, till they have a home crowd to do it in front of, say, hey, you're a part of this as well. And if, you know, baseball resumes this season, a lot of the, you know, a, a lot of the, the uh, a lot of the pomp and circumstance. Mm-hmm. You said, well, yes, yeah, that'll be gone. But I don't think there's going to be a crowd. I think, oh, if okay, baseball is played in 2020. Um, a lot of the experts are saying it's not going to be in front of a crowd. So that's a great. You, you don't do a number retirement as a made-for-TV event. There is a great reason to take it off the calendar and then maybe never reschedule it. So I agree. I think most Philly fans love him disproportionately. I obviously do not because we have an episode titled Chuck Hates Roy Halliday, which I do not. I do not hate Roy Halliday. Actually, I loved his brief time in Philadelphia. Um but I think you take it off the calendar and then, you know, decide at a later date whether to retire it. And like you, Dave, he's a great player, but, you know, the Flyers aren't retiring Chris Pronger's number. And Chris Pronger essentially put that team on his back and took him to a Stanley Cup final. But he was barely here. And the same applies to Roy Halladay. So if his death was less... You know, sad tragedy that had nothing to do with his own decisions and more uh, a lot of bad choices, bad circumstances led to this, then maybe uh, you hold off. So I don't think Halliday's numbers getting retired in 2020. So do you think maybe that uh, more organizations should take the Catholic approach to the number retirement situation? Uh, and by that, I mean it should be like 50 years after your death. And if you uh, if three miracles can be attributed to your number, uh, it can then be retired. <laughs> and and should it's only two. No, it's definitely three. Oh, it's definitely three. <laughs> and it should be three if you're going to get your number retired. And yeah. should a um, and should a panel of former Yankees uh, have to adjudicate this? Because clearly that's the best analogy we have to the Vatican in Major League Baseball. Ooh, that is like, I believe, the most controversial religious statement we've ever made on this show. Well, I, I know we're all Catholic and we all put it out there that we are. But to compare the Vatican to the Yankees, and I'm not saying you're wrong, but I'm really, you know, rethinking uh, the Episcopal Church now. Um, But, no, I agree. I think... Clearly the Episcopalians are the Dodgers, just... <laughs> a joke that requires knowledge of multiple religions and multiple baseball franchises but it really worked for me um but no i i agree that retiring a number shouldn't just be an emotional choice it shouldn't be we like this guy let's retire his number because in that case chooch is long overdue for having his number retired oh my ian le perrier should have his number retired 
but that's not it. it it is a franchise best of the best you know someone we want to look up to for any number of reasons but, look, but somebody I, that represents the franchise yeah there's no black and white rule about number retiring i think each organization needs to make its own decision about what numbers need to be retired and and the significance to that organization and and the teams that they played on and uh the connection to fans and things like that you know we've talked about you know chase chase's number should be retired should howard's number be retired uh, rollins uh, hamels like which which if any of these guys numbers we do we retire number 10 uh for like boa slash dalton i, I mean could they has there ever been a shared number retiring i i don't know it, it might be fun to do something like that but i would be much more connected to saying like hey we're going to retire darren dalton's number than i am connected to saying we're going to retire roy halliday's number that's just me I, I don't know how you guys feel about that well no i i agree i agree in the sense that dalton or the number 10 um to represent boa and dalton is a better call because they they meant more to the franchise, not just as a player, but as a manager uh, for Boa, as someone in the broadcast booth for Dutch. You know, well, Dutch's death is much more of a tragedy in my mind than uh, Roy Halladay's. Oh yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree, and I. And the only caveat is if you're using the Hall of Fame as your criteria, you know, that's fine. And, you know, maybe somebody, a fan favorite cut down in his prime who might have been a Hall of Fame fa uh, uh, player but never got that opportunity, maybe. You know, Dutch was a great player. Bo was a great player. They're not Hall of Fame players. Nope. So if it's that Hall of Fame line, well, then use the Hall of Fame line, but they damn well better be wearing a Phillies cap in the Hall of Fame. You know, I'm going back to that Pronger analogy. Right. Hell, the Flyers, again, same criteria. you got to be in the Hockey Hall of Fame for them to retire your number. But why didn't we retire Pronger? Why didn't we retire Paul Coffey? Because their time in Philadelphia – Whatever it was, and Prongers was certainly great. They they're not going to go down in in the annals of you know uh, of public record as Philadelphia players. And Halliday, although he had the perfect game, although he had the no hitter here, that was it. He came in as a big free agent, delivered two great things and a couple of great seasons and that was that he and if it wasn't is, for that postseason no hitter i wonder i see, wonder for me see for me i always think of the perfect game and the fact that it had you know it was the first night of the stanley cup final i think a lot of philadelphians were watching tv that night you know i think it was just a lot of people were tuned in to that moment and then of course the perfect game uh, sorry, the uh, no-hitter game one of the playoffs. In a series, we didn't even win, you know? Yeah. Like, 
he lived up to all the hype, but his career in Philadelphia is so short. Wait, did it's... you say that we didn't win the series that he threw the no-hitter in? I thought that was against uh, the Cardinals. No, it was against no, Cincinnati. The oh, I apologize. We went, we I, went I, on I, and lost the, the next series to the Giants that year. We swept that series, right? Yeah, three games. Yeah. Okay. Um. All right. I mean, any final thoughts on Roy Halladay? I think, I, he, I think I, no, but I, go on, the, the only thing I would say is I think that this is the perfect reason as to why you really need to take your time before you, um, you know, stick things up on the wall without being able to open yourselves up to the opinions of people like us three fine gentlemen. Um, I will say this for this entire situation. It has been nice to be able to call my dad and talk about something other than what's on the news that can get one of us equally fired up. Um, <laughs> and and it, it has been nice to, you know, be able to talk some semblance of not sports that happened uh, 25 years ago. Um, so, you know, once again, um, it reminds me of <laughs> probably yeah. why I like sports to begin yeah. with. I wonder how how hard that uh, the the holiday PR machine uh, was chugging um, after after he passed away. You know the whole you know with his wife and the kids. I mean, they had to have known that something was well. His wife was awry. I, I think it was in the Hall of Fame speech. He said, "You know, no one is perfect. This is you know." It's a loss no matter what they did. I lay the groundwork we, there. Yeah, because I think she knew. And, yeah. And and if I'm going to end with one thought on Halliday, it's okay that people have demons. It's okay that someone's not perfect. And it's not Roy Halliday's fault that you know, oh, after he passed away, he was like canonized. That no, was, oh yeah, no, no, no. I get that. Yeah, yeah. You know, for it's sure. it was a big overreaction from the market. Hence the episode titled "Chuck Hates Roy Halliday" because I don't. I really love Doc, um, but to accept them as a flawed human being, we were never given the opportunity. It was what a great player, what a great guy perfect he was in every sense of the word perfect and you didn't have a chance to go oh man that's sad that he's dead you know i think of ray emery passing away you know with a swimming accident and the athletics article about that of going what really happened he might have had a few too many beers like that's mm -hmm. it that's what like that's still tragic. You, if you go swimming with your friends after too many beers and you die, you're not going to take anybody else with you. That's you totally know? different than this situation, though. Yeah, but it was presented as, oh, the real history of Ray Emery's passing away. And it, it comes down to reputation. Doc was a guy everyone loved. Emery was a guy that had his problems during his life. And, you know, I think the last time we spoke, uh, we talked about, you know, um, the USFL game and how they weren't, you know, painting this narrative. 
And that happened to Doc. That happened to uh, to Razor. That, okay, they passed away and all the sports journalists came in to say, Doc Holliday, you know, this brave spirit passes away in tragic accident. Ray Emery, this troubled soul passes away under whatever circumstances. And a few years after the fact, it's like, oh, no, one was just an accident. The other one was someone kind of being an ass. But, yeah, it's the let's not rush to judgment. Let's. And even if we find out that somebody is, you know, culpable in their own death, somebody could have been endangering others that doesn't invalidate them as a human being. You know, people are multidimensional and should be viewed as such. Well put, Chuck. Well put. And speaking of multidimensional and And being an ass and things with demons, uh, the 1993 (laughs) National League champion Philadelphia Phillies. Chuck, you had us rewatch what was it? Game six. Game six of the uh, NLCS against the Braves, uh, the game the Phillies clinched and went on to the World Series available on YouTube um, under MLB Archive or something along those lines. Uh, I think it's MLB Vault. It is MLB Vault. You're correct. Um, Which is putting on like a lot of great stuff. There's like interesting things on there. Um, to to check out. If you loved baseball in the '90s, they they're yeah. they're slowly kind of parsing out like the absolute cream of the crop gems of that decade. I watched Cargo the the full game of Carlos Gonzalez's cycle the other day. I watched. Ooh. That's a great one. I saw that was up, and I watched uh, a Twins a game from uh, Game Seven of the Twins uh, Atlanta series Braves, from yeah. I, I believe that was '91. Uh, Puckett man, Another yeah. One. That was, I forgot how much, like how good that, that twins team kind of was. And how good that Braves team was. Oh, fuck the Braves. That's my big takeaway from all this. Fuck the Braves. I hate the Braves so bad. So I have like a ton of observations about this because, you know, grow. All right. So if you're anywhere between, I don't know, 37 and 43 years old, like, this may have been the the 93 Phillies may have been the one great team from your childhood. Now, yeah. Chuck, you're going to say 87 Flyers. No, I'm not. That's, it, well, oh. Really? Well, 87 Flyers were great, but it's completely different circumstance. Well, and the other thing with the 87 Flyers is it was so hard, unless you were truly financially committed, to actually watch that run. You know what I mean? Like, that was back in the day where, like, the only televised games were, like, Canadian games in the Western time zone. Uh, You know, and if you're an eight-year-old kid, you can't watch that stuff. That was back in the day where home games were broadcast on Prism. And, you you know, we were all taught hockey over the voice of Gene Hart. You couldn't you literally could not see the the amount of hockey that you can now. It was it was a niche sport. And unless you grew up in a household where your dad was as devoted to hockey as, you know, was an insane fanatic, which I didn't. My dad was a uh, a football, baseball, football uh, guy. um, Mm -hmm. 
you did you just didn't you just couldn't be as i had to seek hockey out later in my my youth um i had to well, go i after. didn't latch on to hockey until the 90s like the late 90s like the legion of doom the flyers 90s. yeah um, well and and for me 87 um do you want to know the first game that i remember watching game seven <laughs> flyers uh versus the oilers uh, 1987, and I was watching at a friend's house. Um, we were not a hockey family. My older brother had some friends who were diehard hockey fans, and we went to watch this game. And I, I certainly knew of the Flyers. I certainly knew of a, you know, in my head growing up, the Flyers had just won the Stanley Cup. Um, but this first game I remember watching and I must have, it was me and my twin brother, along with my older brother and some friends of his, I must have pissed off everyone in the room because I kept asking, it's like, why aren't there more fights? You know, I was not concerned <laughs> with this was a chance to win the Stanley Cup. And I didn't feel like seven, eight years old was terribly young, but I was like, okay. Now let's just go win it again. You know, we missed that chance. When's yeah. our next chance yeah. to win the Stanley Cup? Um, but the that what I mentioned of it felt like the Flyers had just won it versus the Phillies in '93 to 1980. That's a huge gap. Well, they had been in the World Series in 13, 83. 14-year-old. They had been in the World Series in 83, but that, um, to some degree, that felt like a continuation in a weird way, I would assume. It's your life, though. Like, that's the thing. It's like we were too young for mm -hmm. the, the 83 Sixers. We were too young for the, the 80 Phillies, the 83 Phillies. You may have been old enough to understand what was going on with the, the 87 Flyers, but I was not connected with hockey and like you said gene unless you lived in a household where that was a uh, an important part of your sports you know watching experience you didn't really get it you know now the 93 phillies you still had this prism issue going on at that time so you know you didn't get every game but you definitely got every sunday game uh and you got this like smattering of other road games i want to say um, and you got a you got a consistent radio experience. Yeah, and you you did Correct. get a lot of a lot of. That's why a lot of my memories of the '93 Phillies are connected to road games because that's uh, that was the PHL games. I feel like a lot of those mm -hmm. games were PHL games. Uh, you also have to remember, and this was something that was a little jarring: is this was before realignment, so yeah. the the divisions were were very different. And who we were playing on a more consistent basis, um, we played the Pirates a hell of a lot more. We played the Cubs mm -hmm. a hell of a lot more. Um, I Cards. remember growing up, I, I, you know, when I think of my childhood, I think of away games, day games at Wrigley, being homesick, you know, in the in, yeah. the, in the late spring and seeing a day game. And this was the Wrigley. last year of that. Yeah, the next year, uh, which is strike shortened. Um, I think is the last, you know, is also this when they started 
the, the process of realignment. Um, you had the Montreal Expos. I remember seeing what basically looked like the Vet North, uh, the games played in, uh, in the thing. And that's another observation that, you know, shouldn't be as jarring. But, I mean, it seems sacrilegious to see games played on artificial turf now. Like, very seriously. The the idea of, of games played on artificial turf, uh, it, it seems unpalatable. You would honestly subject yourself to 81 games in a stadium hmm. under those conditions with these uh, the athletes you're paying the kind of money you're paying to. Are you nuts? Why would you do that? Uh, and yep. to know that that was the majority of stadiums at that time played under these conditions. In fact, there were several stadiums still in in the league that were literally cookie-cutter carbon copies of the same stadium, those multi-sport, the vet, Three Rivers. Um, I forget what it was called. Was it Paul Brown in, in, in Cincinnati? They're literally all the exact same uh, stadium. You have the, you know, visually would have the exact same experience uh, going I mean, from place to place. Even the grass fields were terrible. Right. What about Candlestick? Was it uh, Candlestick in Sandy, uh, San Francisco that had, you know, when the 49ers played? The cutouts. Yeah, the yeah, the Coliseum had that. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, so yeah, even the uh, Shea is was not a was not a great a great ballpark. Although it was much better than the 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 multi facility uh, stadiums that we, that we were playing in and stuff. But um, yeah, yeah. So one thing I like... want to touch on is, is how I followed this season. I wasn't aware of which games were on TV. Um, since baseball's played almost every day, there was enough baseball on, on over the air. Did not have cable of any sort at this time. Um, but there were enough games on TV that I was able to watch the team. But I followed the 93 Phils through the newspaper, through the radio, through like Channel 6's, you know, 6 a.m., 7 a.m. like news broadcast. You know, I would listen to games. I would know that a big game was coming up. And the first thing I'd do would be turn on, you know, the TV or grab the newspaper to find out if the Phillies won. And that sounds like, you know, we were watching baseball in like 1948, but this was only 93, but it was a very different world at that time. I, I Yeah, I, I listened to so many games in my room on the radio Mm -hmm. uh, and I, yeah, you're right. It makes it sound like you're in uh, like a Christmas story, like running home to like listen to the radio or whatever. Always drink a Ovaltine or whatever. Um, but I mean, I was listening to it while I was playing video games on a Super Nintendo with sound <laughs> turned off uh, most of the time. Yeah. So yeah, it's a very different way to follow baseball. It wasn't as accessible. So I, you know, this is the summer where I I turned 13. So you're right in the prime of like having all sorts of other things trying to pull your your interests, whether it be other. <laughs> Gene, I'm sure you were pulling your interests here, right on your own. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how to follow that. I think that's um, the most explicit masturbation <laughs> joke we've ever made on this show. And it's so appropriate that it had to do with the 93 pills. 
um but yeah we we you know i had a transistor radio that kind of like went everywhere with me because that was back in the days where you you wanted to stay out until the street lights came on and you know the games would start at 705 735 you know and i wasn't getting home until nine o'clock at night but i had a radio in my back pocket when i would be out on my bike and and you know it would just come in inside with me i'd grab something to eat i'd go into my room I'd, I'd turn on my Nintendo or my Genesis and, you know, turn the sound down on the TV and listen to the game. And I, I mean, that was probably more games I probably could have watched on TV, but I just preferred listening to the radio in a lot of ways. And this was the the last great Phillies team that it was Harry and Whitey together. Yeah. And it was the first great Phillies team for our generation. Like, you know, like Dave said, if you were, what, maybe 37 to 43, you missed out on the 83 championship. You might have been vaguely cognizant of it. A lot of my memories of these sort of championships were hand-me-down clothing. <laughs> so where I'd have yeah. like like yeah. a Phillies championship t-shirt that in my head it five years old was from a million years ago, but it was just my older brothers. Um, but it was a window of, yeah, we had Schmidt, you know, yeah, we had all these great players, but there was a lot of really bad baseball. Oh, yeah. Hell, there was a lot of really bad sports until the yeah, Phil until the 93. And so, yeah. and the thing that I didn't realize going into this game, you know, when I was, in ninth grade or whatever it was when, when I was watching this game live um, was just how much, like we had no business winning this series. None. I mean, I didn't realize the Braves won 104 fucking games. <laughs> and didn't they come back from like uh, the 16 games behind at the all-star break or some crazy shit like that? Uh, to beat a Giants team by a game to get in the playoffs who won 103 games? Yeah, you got to be kidding me. And that was what I what kind of I had to, to remember about being um, being realigned because I was like, how did we even end up in this situation? Wouldn't, you know, with baseball being the way it was. But I remember that technically Atlanta was a Western division team. And the other thing that was amazing is when, when I was a kid, you don't really have that. You know, there certainly in my household, it was a very, I was a very regional sports fan. You know what I mean? I didn't spend almost, I didn't play fantasy sports then. So I didn't have really quite the same recognition of, um, of the other teams or what other teams were doing outside of baseball was probably the closest I came because I was a pretty avid baseball card collector. So I knew what cards I wanted to collect. Mm -hmm. I knew who the good players were on other teams. I didn't necessarily quite understand how they were in relation to each other, if that makes any sense at all. Um, but I do remember hating the Braves for so many reasons. And and very seriously, one of the reasons is the Braves were a team that would have been equally as easy to follow as the Phillies at the time. Equally as easy. There were three teams yeah. that you could have followed and watched the majority of, oh, of baseball. Yes. You had, back then, there was something called the Superstations, and you had TBS, and you had WGN. WGN was the equivalent of uh, a, a Superstation that would, would came out of Chicago, and it broadcast almost every Cubs game. Oh, and we had PIS, right? Yeah, we, WGN still exists, but it 
like in most major metropolitan areas, unlike now where where, you know, you have regional sports stations, um, you got piped in, you know, Philadelphia had their own equivalent. That was PHL. You got piped in these super stations from other markets, and you got piped in Turner Broadcasting, which is still a huge super station, but it also came along with it Hawks basketball and Braves baseball, mm -hmm. which very seriously sort of made Deion Sanders, I think, certainly a bigger deal than Deion Sanders would have been because he was so much larger than life. And it made the Braves, in a weird way, sort of equivalent to, like, America's team the way the Cowboys were. The difference was the Braves had a cast of characters who were high in talent, low in personality, or the personality that they had was fucking awful. <laughs> <laughs> Starting, like... A, number one, the goddamn manager was one of the most hateful, ugly grandpas in the history of sports. He was the guy that if he was my grandfather, when he came home from work, I'd want to hide in the basement and not have to interact <laughs> with him. Yeah, that guy would have been pushed out of baseball in, like, today's age. With his stupid flunky, Leo Mazzoni. Rocking back and forth. Who just sort of looked like he had some sort of Tourette's. Like he, they well, were the, the most, that's a bad call in '93. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, they were both. Poor Jim Eisenreich. They were both. I know. They were both ridiculous. They were like cartoon character villains. They, they. So it was so easy to just, as a kid, slide into that mode of. God, I hate those two guys. God, I hate Greg, Ma Greg Max. We didn't know, but we didn't know about Bobby Cox then, right? I don't think we knew quite what an asshole he was, but I think just looking at him, he was he was not fun-loving like Jim Fergosi, certainly. He, you know, he wasn't Tommy Lasorda, like that sort of a cartoon. No, this guy just looked like a grump. He never looked happy, and not in a fun way. And also, but real quick, too, of like we didn't know about Bobby Cox – Remember the tomahawk chop? You that, know, that still goes on today? Yeah, but... <laughs> I mean, I don't have to it, think back too far, because I saw it last season in the playoffs. And that's true, but what I was saying was, it was like the envy of the league. It wasn't like, you know, is this offensive? Like, is this, you know, taking a cultural stereotype and, and marketing it? No, in 1993, it was like, man, I wish we had a tomahawk chop. Well, I love that like, during that game, we got to see the mock chop uh, towards the end of the game, which was one of my favorite things, you know, you know, to see. It's like, you know, you're getting you're you're, you're getting uh, eliminated here, so we're gonna we're gonna do the tomahawk chop. And back you also you. heard smattering, you heard of, smatterings uh, of the whoop. There it is, chant. Yes, you heard that a lot too. <laughs> but it reminded me a lot of when you know Eagles fans were doing the skull chant uh, uh, against the Vikings in uh, 2017, and when Flyers fans did the ole to oh yeah yeah, yeah that was all throughout that Canadian it, series. It's cool for fans. your. It, it's cool when you're doing it to support your team, but when you whenever you have that, that's a weapon that can be used against you. Uh, and really. Philly is the first place to use it against you. But, we'll be we'll be waiting to do it too. But yeah. <laughs> but going back to like the Goliath that was the the '90s Braves, like this was a decade long masterclass in team building. They yes. they really did construct a roster that was built to demolish the regular seasons in baseball, and it is amazing how 
bad they were at winning the World Series. Yeah. They were just... They only won the one, right? They won in the early 2000s? 1995, they beat the Indians. Oh, it was 95? Yep. Yeah. Oh, okay. Against uh, Charlie Manuel's Indians, which... It's kind of really reminiscent of our uh, 103-win team. And was it 2011? Yeah, I think so. That was 2011, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we were definitely a regular season juggernaut with the four starting pitchers. And when I look back at this Braves team, it's like, man, God damn. It's like you basically have like four Hall of Fame pitchers. Well, well, just look, compare the four hole hitters in this game. Compare the four hole hitters in this game. Who was hitting four for the Phillies in this game? <laughs> Dave Holland. Right. And who was hitting four for the Braves? Uh, Ron Gant. That, right. Like, those are two very different career paths, you know? <laughs> I'm, are they? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, can I talk about, real quick, when talking about the Braves lineup, my most visceral memory is uh, collecting baseball cards and going, hey, this guy's really good. What team does he play for? Oh, Atlanta. Hey, this guy's really good. And Ron Gant was like the number one like for that. I don't know. I just picked him to like him because I got like a Topps card with a special logo on it. And all of this came to a head in in 93 at least might have been before i feel like you know there's some animosity before but 93 it was like oh my baseball collection out the window my baseball card collection has been invalidated by this game well you know and this was the era of baseball where you kind of it was very much like set it and forget it with your lineups and i think that that's what really doomed the braves because ron gant fucking sucked in this series i watched game one of this series and i watched game six and he absolutely killed the braves he struck out uh I, I at least like half the times that he came up to the plate he ended innings um and uh wait hold on wasn't he the was he the three hole hitter or was see i McGriff. They kind of moved around. I know that. I mean, you had Ron. I mean, the point being, you had Ron Gant. You had David Justice. You had Fred McGriff. You, you. I don't know that you have a combination of guys like uh, McGriff that. McGriff was the cleanup hitter because Gant always ended the innings, and McGriff always had to lead off uh, the next inning. And, and you know, he, Fred McGriff was a like pretty stereo a prototype of a of a '90s power hitter. Um, that was a guy that, that could kind of spray it all over, but had just such a pure swing, much like a guy like Ken Griffey Jr. That's, I always thought of them as sort of a, a parallel in body type and, and style of hitter. Ken Griffey Jr. Obviously a much better hitter, but, uh, you know, as far as just the way they were built, you know what I mean? Much different than uh, probably how you would cast a power hitter in today's game yeah i'm like quadruple misremembering because what in my notes it was i wanted if i was bobby cox i would have moved gant out of being between mcgriff and justice i think that was was what i was because they were lighting it up and he was just like a black hole anyway whatever he was very instrumental in the braves demise in that in that series um, but Dave Hollins had that huge homer in that game. So do we want to talk like, I mean, let's, let's just real quick kind of talk about the, 
because I really think that the conversation about this game is about the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning. Honestly, I think there are uh, some. It's kind of about the first inning too, don't you think? Because Morandini t- hits a shot off Maddox's leg. Oh yeah, yeah. I I do have I have this to to talk about too. Yeah, in the first inning. And I, do you think that affected anything? The and I want no remembering that I did go back and I, I watched the first six innings of this without sound, which I think was actually a good decision because I didn't have any. Uh, any commentary to give me any kind you of don't want vintage McCarver? No, but well, <laughs> and I did get plenty because I watched the last three. That sure. was that was enough. But so I, that was one of the things I remember specifically about this game was that he had taken that shot off the leg early in the game, and I was watching to see if there was anything about the way Maddox was pitching that seemed to indicate that he was any in, in any kind of distress. And just to my eye, I, I didn't see anything, but. You have to imagine mentally that if you take a shot like that off your leg early in a game, that there's going to be a certain amount of fatigue even that will set in mentally um, much earlier than if you were not in any sort of distress. And I think that that's really what may have gotten Maddox off his game, especially considering, and this was something I wanted to talk about a little bit earlier, Greg Maddox was not a power pitcher. He was the you know, called like the professor. He he was going to mentally outwork you deeper into a game, outthink hitters more than he was going to blow stuff past them. And I think that if you were able to take just enough off of his mental edge, that was probably enough to let Phillies hitters kind of get on top of things that they maybe wouldn't have had he been able to completely give his concentration to what he was dealing. That that's a fair point uh, to think about. It's it's almost like you know, like the antith- uh, the antithesis of you know my perspective of this game. You know, watching the ninety three fills from a modern perspective is really weird to think about like what are the x's and o's like who is taking the plate you know you know let's look at the advanced stats for maddox and was he inhibited how much was he hurt by this this injury in the first inning whereas i look at the 93 night uh lineup now and who i think of is shane victorino you know it's just like dumb. Point me at the plate, and I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go swing and probably hit something good, like you know, uh, you know, Dutch being the exception. But it just seemed like a whole bunch of dumb baseball guys who knew how to swing a bat real good, and you're not gonna break it down with analytics. Well, I think so, Gucci did, did a that year did a great job, kind of navigating that team. I I don't know, like to me that although I love Mickey Morandini, I was always a Mariano Duncan guy, uh, at second. But mm. you know, if Duncan plays in this game, is is it is it a different story? You know, I I I think he just played a lot of right notes between. A lot of mediocre journeymen outfielders. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, at, 
how can you not think of that team and not, you know, it really tells a lot about your personality. Like if you were to do one of those Bud, BuzzFeed quizzes about the 93 Phils, you know, <laughs> I think, you know, it would really make a big determination as to what you result as if you're an Eisenreich guy or an Incavilia guy. I was going to mention those two exact players. Well, they they didn't compete with one another. It was uh, it was Milt Thompson or or Incavilia, right? Or West Chamberlain or Eisenreich. Wasn't that kind of how it? Oh, I thought it was Inky and Eisenreich that would often kind of flip. Like usually, if you started in Cavilia in in left field, it would be Eisenreich that would be brought in for defense. Oh, maybe you're right. And I think that that reason why you didn't see in Cavilia at all in that game is because that Eisenreich had started in the uh, the way the game played out defensively. And they say it in the commentary that, um, and this was something that I intuitively remembered: the Fergosi would never. Uh, substitute late in games to weaken his defense. It was always more important to him to keep the defense as best equipped to handle a, a situation rather than make a move to give them more offense. So well, they were not a strong defensive team. No, they weren't. Although I this mean, this game, I think they played uh, pretty good defense. They did. Dave Hollins was not great. Not a great third base. No, it was I'm, you were pretty much guaranteed Dave hops. Dave Hollins was gonna was gonna take uh take three at bats a game and then somebody else was gonna come in. Yeah. I mean he would crow hop his way all the way to first base if he could, uh, hmm. before making that throw. And I don't know if you remember at the beginning of the season, Juan Bell uh was giving me gray hairs at the age of twelve. <laughs> uh-huh. And Incavilia's adventures and left. You know, it, it kind of was a mess. It was a mess. It was a mess. And and I'll throw it to you, or Dave, uh, you Dave or Eugene to remember what was the name of the, uh, the uh, rain delay show from the 93 oh, Phillies. That, whatever it takes, dude. Whatever it takes, dude. I would have mangled that, but uh, I knew all the sentiments it was the 93 fills were this lightning in a bottle team you know eisenreich and incavelia who what both won um the championship with uh the marlins correct eisenreich and dalton won with uh oh, okay that's marlins. true yeah yep 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 i don't think eisenreich um, was in the league the next year or, or uh, I don't think Incavilla was in the league the next year. I don't think he played in 94. Yeah, Incavilla always is sort of the reverse. When Matt Stairs came around, I got strong Incavilla vibes. <laughs> um, but Incavilla was a more complete player, and that is not saying much. Sorry to our Canuck friend, Matt Stairs. But it was just... It was just by hook or by crook and players too dumb to know that they they weren't supposed to be competing like this and Schilling being dragged along <laughs> for the ride to, you know, towel on his head going, how the fuck am I, you know, attached to this team? And, and speaking of which, th- this is a sort of a weird, they we, we had a weird playoff format uh, back then because it was, if you had... Why did the why did we have home field? Oh God, I have no idea. I have no idea. 
So we had games one, two, six, and seven. Yeah, because and it was a similar layout, although the American League had the reverse for the World Series because the way it was, they talk about it in the broadcast. They talk about how it was going to be one and two in Toronto. No, I guess it was a similar setup because no, it was definitely going to be game one in Toronto. Yeah, it was similar because it was right. We had three. We lost in Toronto in game six. Right, lost in Toronto in game six. Right, but why the the Braves won one hundred and four games. We won what ninety three. There must have been some sort of a coin toss or, or... Or it's an alternating years. Yeah, because, I mean, there was no wild card, right? No. Because th- there was... This was... It was this playoff series and the World Series. There was no... There was no first round. We didn't have to I play anybody in our division. I just think it's crazy to give a team game six and seven at home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how do you do that? I have no idea. They don't do it anymore. But, it, I mean, incredible that, we, you know, we're down two games to one... Uh, after game three, and you know, to have these stud pitchers lined up, I mean, amazing testament to that team's uh, resiliency, I guess, to come back and win that series. And, you know, the, the night before, the game before, is when Lenny Dykstra hit the, the 10th inning homer off Mark Wohlers. Right. <laughs> Damn, that's a good pull. Well, and, you know, it, you, you kind of get a sort of get drawn back into the drama that was that series because. Um, you know, there was both on both sides. There was very little confidence in the bullpen, specifically the the closing pitchers. Um, already, Mitch Williams was, you know, he already had earned the moniker the the wild thing. But you know, if you remember the eighth inning, and I I had told this is one of the things that I had totally forgotten. David West was straight dealing. He was filthy. He was on gas eighth yeah. inning, and he had the meat of the order and he was able to get those three outs because even if one of those guys gets on that turns that lineup over and he's not, you know, Mitch Williams is not facing a pinch hitter or, you know, in the pitching spot, uh, you know, a guy that's coming out sort of cold rather than the top of the inning. It, that is such an under remembered, at least certainly to me, an under remembered part of this this season, we all have seared in our memories the uh, the Mitch Williams leaping, uh, you know, and you know, doing basically the Van Dam split in midair. But <laughs> um, you know what? Really, we maybe we should be remembering from this series is that ice cold stare of David West coming off the mound in the eighth inning, um, knowing that he's just shut down the Braves' best chance to win this, you know, to keep the series going because he he was he threw pitches in that inning that no left-handed batter would ever in the history of baseball be able to hit. It's it's weird because I, I remember so much about the '93 Phillies, but the only three relievers that I remember are Larry Anderson, David West, and Mitch Williams. Hmm. Uh, I, I'm not sure that I could tell you uh, another reliever from that team. Cause that's really all that mattered. And we, we had, we talk about this team as like a mashing team, but the pitching was surprisingly good. The, start, uh, the starting pitching certainly was, although, uh, you know, it had its fair share of injuries and, uh, the amazing thing is one of the winning pitchers in this game, uh, in this series, I, I never, I, I, if you had put, uh, put me to the test probably six months ago, I would have told you Kurt Schilling started this game. Um, I don't know why I would have misremembered it that way, but uh, I would have told you that Kurt Schilling started this game. He didn't, obviously. Tommy well, Green did. Um, yeah. 
the Braves lost this series when they lost to Danny Jackson. And that was what I was going to say. Um, the only, maybe the other iconic um, memory I have of the 93 Phillies is that, if we remember, that Danny Jackson ripping his shirt wide open. Pump you mm-hmm. up. Yeah. He serious like, that was one of those things that if there was, if there was ever a meme or, or some sort of an icon for them, their avatar online, if the 93 team was able to, like, incarnate one body and become a an avatar on the online it would be danny jackson make because that was them they literally would just come at you like a tasmanian devil uh in full throat like they this was not this was not an elegant baseball team uh this team didn't like anything elegant about it john cruck wore the pants that he had ripped basically to shreds in the second inning through the entire game now, um, did you hear – were you listening to the commentary when they were talking about that, Gene? I was listening when they were talking about how McCarver was almost offended when he came up to bat again in the, in the seventh inning with his pants still ripped. Basically, right, because... made it, it, basically he was like, did his mother not raise him correctly? Why didn't he get another pair of pants? Well, he said, you know, you have several uh, uniforms – so the only reason to still be wearing a pant, you know, pants that have a, a tear in the ass at that point is because you like it, right? You wanted to wear it, right? Because you had every opportunity to 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 get changed, and you chose not to. And I mean, you're talking about a guy that went through basically an entire season without cleaning the pine tar off of his helmet. Uh, I, you know, I really don't think he cares about some ripped pants. I mean, you have no, to and I wonder if that's part of it with the with out cleaning the helmet. You know, yeah, sure. You know, I tear my pants in the first second e- inning. I'm like, well, no, I'm going to play, you know, bare ass the rest of the game. <laughs> you have to wear chaps out here. You have to remember, like, <laughs> just a few years before this, you know, this was not a team where you you made some big free agent signing and then was like well this you know it wasn't like jim tomey came in or bryce harper came in and you're like well they're gonna be great like this was like chuck said it was a a lightning in a bottle all worse to first kind of a situation uh remember if you think back to your phillies marketing um the the 91 92 you know their big who they tried to make the icon of the franchise at one point was dale murphy remember when the phillies brought dale murphy in i don't know if you guys had this in your room but uh you know, you would get those height charts and you would, you know, do, uh, Mr. <laughs> Clean. They used to call uh, Dale Murphy Mr. Clean. Well, the counterpart, of course, to Mr. Clean is Dr. Dirt. That was the nickname that uh, <laughs> they wanted us to call Lenny Dykstra when he came is in. That, a, that he wait, was going to be Dr. Yeah, it was Dr. Dirt and Mr. Clean. There was a poster where Lenny Dykstra had a big wad of chaw in his mouth and was covered from head to toe, toe in dirt. And Dale Murphy had a, like a white, bright uniform on and it was the poster was like a height chart or something like that that was dr dirt and mr clean and uh, people i had one people had these posters in their rooms hold on is dr dirt a real thing in like uh i don't know the mr clean character oh no 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 that was just no that was just that was just the phillies marketing was trying to say like we have mr lenny dykstra got a doctorate (laughs) yes in filth right doctorate in filth that whole Holds up. <laughs> the, yeah. Okay. Fair that, enough. Yeah. Excel. So he he was Doctor Dirt, Mister Clean, but nobody. You know, we don't talk about Lenny Dykstra, Doctor Dirt. That's not what Harry Callis said. He was the dude. <laughs> he the was dude. the dude. 
You know, and that that was the thing. It was the 93 Phillies were these were the cast offs, the team that if you were a Phillies fan and had to to go through the the horrible experience that was the the Tommy Herr led Phillies. Uh, the, the late Mike Schmidt year Phillies when he could give zero fucks about what was happening. Um, all of a sudden, your heroes have ascended to this this place where they don't belong. They don't fit in. They don't it's look It's Rocky, the part. man. It's Rocky, dude. It's Major League, too. It, but... Like, <laughs> But and they were also like the team like no one no one likes us and we don't care. Yes. Yeah. I, well, I mean like nobody Jackson, liked the like... Phillies around baseball. It was like you no. know fuck these guys they're fucking slobs. They talked about it in the thing like you know appearance plays such a huge part in this series. Why? <laughs> like it's not that like whatever. Okay, I, I remember like, having not clean this... prim proper. Well, fuck you, man. I remember having those conversations of is this Phillies team like disrespectful? Are they too dirty? You know, is Crux helmet a thing? Like I don't to me know, it's Macho the ultimate Rowe. respect. It's the ultimate respect for baseball. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is how it is. And the we amusing, get dirty when we play. Sorry. The amusing thing is, you would see the the dugout shots, and I imagine if you were to take a camera into almost any other dugout during that season, specifically if you were to take it into the Yankees clubhouse that season, um, you would see everybody in in you know you wouldn't see their hair. Uh, out of the bottom of the helmets. But if you look at the, the the Braves team compared to the Phillies team, you can look up and down that bench. And uh, like I was saying at the beginning of the, the, the episode, uh, you know, my wife confused John Cruck and, and Darren Dalton, which would be sacrilege, certainly, in most places. But the point being that they had these long, flowing Samson-like locks. Um, <laughs> they had mullets. Okay, they had <laughs> mullets. But, Gee, thanks for sugarcoating that. You, you, um, you would not... I, and I said, I sent you guys the video clip when I was watching the game of Jim Fergosi. I don't know if it was the eighth or the ninth. Jim Fergosi in the dugout with tobacco in his mouth, lighting a fucking cigarette in the dugout. Uh, I mean, if that doesn't if that doesn't tell you anything about this team, I don't know what will. <laughs> God, I love this team so much. Right. And, uh, and I don't even know why. Like, the Macho Row is like <laughs> toxic masculinity boiled down <laughs> and like hyped up on amphetamines. And I'm still like, ah, oh, the 93 fills, man. Uh, honestly, we have not spent nearly enough time in this podcast talking about the greatness of Darren Dalton. We really haven't. We really haven't. Oh, I mean, watching this game makes me want to get a Dutch jersey. Uh, I just fucking love the guy. Yeah, really, you should, if you go to, you know, your local, you know, uh, Rally House or Schuylkill Valley Sports or wherever, and you buy an Utley jersey, they should go, we're selling you a Dalton one as well. Like, they are two sides of the same coin. If you love baseball and you love baseball players these are the guys to to hold on to man they what more do you want what more do you want than the the you know i i called this team dumb several times but dalton was a smart player man he was a smart player 
He was baseball through and through. And, you know, fucking Dutch hung around here until his death. You know, he... he, We fell in love with him in the early 90s and rooted for him with the Marlins and he came back to Philly and when he passed away, I guess a couple of years ago now, it it was like losing a player from the current team. You know, there was something special, special about Dutch more so than Schmidt, more so than anybody on that 93 team up to Utley, you know, and Dutch had twice the personality of Utley. Yeah. I mean, it's our generation's emotional connection to that team made Dutch such an important person uh, in our lives. You know, I I don't know really how to say, I mean, like when he died, I like legit was upset. Yeah. And I, I think if someone said like, you know, give me an example of a guy who, like men want to be and women want to be with, like I would immediately go Darren Dalton. <laughs> yes. Yes. Especially if they follow that 93 season. It's like, uh, I I know from conversations, like many a young, you know, teenage baseball female fan, like had an awakening with Dutch Dalton. It's <laughs> like, I don't know. I just really like him. You know, it's like, he's my favorite player. And then it was like, yeah, apparently I really want Dutch, you know, but yeah, it, it was exactly that, Dave. He was admired. He was, you know, <laughs> sought after. I don't know what you want to say, but he was the heart of the team as much as, you know, Dykstra made the headlines as much as Schilling, as much as, uh, Mitch and Kruk, you know, maybe caught more eyes. It all came down to Dutch. I mean, what catcher, what catcher in, in 1992, what catcher leads the league in RBIs? Nobody. I mean, Gary I, Carter's gone by then. So, I mean, honestly, I mean, with a, with a measly, I think 108 RBIs. Yeah. So yeah. it wasn't like, you know, something crazy, but uh, you know, that's an accomplishment for, for a catcher who, you know, gets, a good deal more rest than a lot of other everyday players yeah. uh, to, to lead the league in RBIs. And, you know, if you watch that, whatever it takes, dude, um, <laughs> rain delay special, which uh, I think <laughs> I destroyed my VHS tape by watching it so much. You know, there was a series. You know, and I think this kind of exemplifies like Dutch's leadership. There was a series in I think July or something against the Cardinals where Schilling was just like, I don't know, fucking losing it. And, uh, like Dutch really like knocked him back in line. I mean, it's a much younger Kurt Schilling then, but it, it, when you look at like, let's say the, the 2008 Phillies and you say, who was the leader of the team? Well, you might say it was Jimmy Rollins. You know, you, you, there, there was, I mean, it probably was J roll, but I mean, you have a couple of different candidates, this team, there's no doubt about it. Like every yeah. player in the locker room would have had the same answer. 
Um, and you just got to respect that, man. That's that's leadership right there. We, we I think we use the phrase leader of men uh, on this podcast, or at least I do quite a bit. And that is an example of a leader of men. The, the only yeah. other uh, thing I wanted to point out, and I don't know if this went unnoticed by you guys, but one of my other favorite things to watch through most of my youth, because I watched a lot of bad baseball, so you get to watch weird shit. Um, but one of my favorite things to watch, uh, partly because he was one of my dad's favorite players when he was a player, but I only ever knew him as a coach, was there were a couple of shots, because I don't think he was uh, coaching a base at this point, but we we probably best remember him Whoa, as a third yeah. base coach. Um, but there was a lot of, you know, kind of sitting right next to Fergosi was Johnny Vuk. Um, and and to, to to just all of a sudden, a lot of nostalgia kind of rushed back when I saw Vuk because he was such an ambassador for the organization. Talk sure. about a guy who was absolutely through and through bled Phillies. Uh, yeah, because Boa was at third. Boa was at third, being as Boa as Boa ever is. Um, <laughs> but you know, throughout the 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 Franco, uh, Francona and Boa years, the the stalwart was Vukovic at third base. Um, yeah. And just seeing him and knowing what a Phillies guy, what a baseball guy, what an ambassador for the organization, and how he loved the organization to see him probably in what was his glory in that game. You know, if you were to ask him what was what was the greatest, you know, as a coach, because he was on the 80 team, um, you know, what was your best moment? You know, there's a very good chance that he would have said being on the bench for that game uh, was, a, was a big thing. So that seeing him in the dugout brought him back a, a rush of nostalgia that I, I didn't expect um, when we when I fired up the game. Um, one other note I had on this game was Joe West was terrible uh, behind the plate. In Dave this Hollins was fucking safe. Yeah, he missed that call, uh, and just his plate was uh, was really inconsistent. I thought. Yeah, yeah, and Boa going absolutely apeshit, and him dismissing him offhanded was <laughs> just. I mean, great to watch now, but I imagine if I was forty year old me in '93. Um, uh, I think there would be holes somewhere in the plaster uh, just from that moment. Well, you know, and nowadays that would have been uh, that call would have been overturned. Um, so they, you know, we had to overcome, you know, a, a whole run being taken away. And thank is God we still, is he still in the league, Joe West? Um, he can't be by now. I mean, no, I, I feel like he retired or maybe died uh, a couple years back. Um, I, I mean, umpires don't normally retire. No, he's 67. He's yeah, 67, I, which means he was our age when he's calling that game? I guess so. Holy fuck. That is really <laughs> weird to think about. Well, actually, I, I want to touch on that. A, I feel good about myself now, thinking that Joe West was a contemporary um, at that time. But looking at these guys that I viewed as adults, I viewed them as like my dad at the time when I was a young teen. And looking at them now at 40, just seeing that these are, you know, guys in their 20s, you know, that these are like young men doing this, even fucking crook, you know, who always yeah. seem like an old grouch from 
however long I knew him. Like he's a young dude at this time. Yeah. And it's not that remarkable because that's that's just sports, but looking at it with a 40-year-old's eye versus a 14-year-old's eye is a, a hell of a big difference, you know? Because at 14, these guys, you know, felt like my dad, felt like grown-ups, and at 40, I'm like, oh, these are just ball players. They're just like 20-year-old kids. Yeah. Gene. Yes. Do you have a game for us to play today? I do, and um, I'm going to be honest. I basically stole it from our sister show, The Whip Around. It's um, and what do they call it on there? Truth or bullshit, or fact or it's bullshit? It's not truth or bullshit. We don't have we don't have. I don't know. Yeah, we don't have we don't have the sounder, but uh, uh, you know. There's a lot of talk about what are sports going to be like when we when we come back to sports. Um, so I've gone through and I've found uh, five different scenarios or situations tied to the return of sports in our lives. And I want you to tell me whether these are real things, truth or bullshit, whether or not this is stuff that's actually happened in the real world or if it's something that Gene made up. Well, so, it's, it, has it happened or has it been proposed? Uh, both of those things would be under the term, I would say, reality. Okay. Um if it's bullshit, it's completely fabricated. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So um, I'm going to go. I think the first one's pretty easy. I think it was, okay. you know, one of those things that I think you'll be able to, to sniff it out or, uh, or or ding it real real quick. So tired of watching old games on YouTube, Donald Trump brings in advisor Vince McMahon to help him figure out how to get sports back. Well, I know that Vince McMahon is advising Donald Trump. Yeah, that's also, yeah, that's definitely true. And I also think Jerry Jones is part of that that committee as well. And you are both correct. That is a that is a real thing. And uh, the the tired of watching old games. That was that was a tweet that Donald Trump had put out that he was tired of watching games that were fourteen years old. Um, on TV, which makes me a little nervous that Donald Trump has the same sort of time on his hands that I do to watch old games on YouTube. Who's the, who, what teams do you think Donald Trump watches? Like Yankees? Oh, yeah. He watches Yankees. He watches Cowboys. <laughs> uh, he watches the Bulls, but only the 90s Bulls. Um, Donald Trump ain't watching basketball, bro. <laughs> that's true. I'm just i'm just gonna break it to you right now donald trump yeah, may watch a, a no bad no basketball i think he and, watches all usfl games that's what i think <laughs> no 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 that was small potatoes man he doesn't even like to remember that he doesn't watch anything he puts it on and then talks through the whole game and plays on his phone <laughs> which is like the most damning thing i said about donald trump on this show ever <laughs> And that's probably more of an indictment of me than him. Sure. Gene, what do you got next? So with the need for realignment to make the Florida-Arizona plan a reality in baseball, they're suggesting moving the Phillies into a division made of only teams they have lost the World Series against and uh, in the last half century and the Florida Marlins. I, th right, I think so that's, that's true. That's Yankees, Blue Jays, uh, Orioles. Yeah, that's the Grapefruit League, right? But there's got to be more teams in there than and just And the Florida that. Marlins. 
the Red Sox have to be in there too. So I'm going to say that's bullshit. I think that there's other teams in there. It is bullshit. Uh, and yeah. I will, I will tell you, but there, there is a proposed new, uh, new alignment. And let me, let me pull up the, uh, the photo that I took of the, uh, of this, uh, particular situation. And the proposed Phillies division would be the Grapefruit League North, which would consist of the Yankees, Phillies, Blue Jays, Detroit Tigers, and Pirates. Oh, I had the I had the wrong. Yeah, the Royals. That's so funny though. The Royals would Red... be in the Cactus League, so that that immediately ruled. Aren't them the out. Red Sox? I thought the Red Sox were super close to the Phillies in 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 the. Um, I know the, the Phillies and Yankees I, I basically are in the same city. The the Grapefruit League South would be Boston, Minnesota, uh, Atlanta, Tampa Bay, and the Orioles. Baseball League, what they're calling uh, Grapefruit League East, would be the Nationals, Astros. So they would become division rivals, Mets, Cardinals, <laughs> That's and cool. the Florida Marlins. Um, yeah, I think right. I'd say the interesting division out uh, in the Cactus League would be the uh, Cubs, Giants, Diamondbacks, Rockies, and A's. Wait, who did the Phillies lose to in uh, in the nineteen fifty series? Well, I, I didn't remember. I believe it was the Yankees. Uh, I didn't remember specifically, so I, I that's why I said half century because. Um, oh, okay. I didn't. Because yeah, okay. I couldn't I think remember. The answer is Joe McCarthy. Yeah, and I, I didn't. I didn't look it up in the fifty series, but uh, you had the. You know, it was the Orioles. Um, well, and the Royals we didn't lose to, but. Um, yeah, it was. It was the Yankees. I was like, well, there may be a chance it was the Tigers. Yeah. So yes, but that that was you sniffed it out well. That that was in fact bullshit. Um, all right, here's uh, one for the uh, for the NHL, Chuck. Uh, similar to baseball, the NHL is considering a m- moving all their teams to a, a isolated location. For the NHL, they're considering North Dakota to complete the regular season and playoffs. And I know the answer to this, so I'll let Dave go first. Uh, I haven't heard that, so I'll say bullshit. Uh, no, that's true. Oh, and the funny thing is, um, one of the reasons they're considering this is um, looking for smaller arenas, except for the fact that uh, uh, Nodax Stadium is cavernous. So, mm. but uh, that that is true. And Chuck, you're absolutely right. That's true. Uh, I think that that's. Is there enough? You know, is there enough? Would you only want to play in one venue? Would they be playing like every other night? Uh, I guess they would need a couple different spaces to play in, right? Well, I think the plan would be to do it almost like the Olympics. And what I heard is like a a one venue for the Western Conference and one venue for the Eastern Conference and do games just like the Olympics, like noon, three, six, nine, that sort of thing. Okay, interesting. Um, the NBA is considering the possibility of former NBA players uh, allowing themselves to be moved into a resort, be filmed by remote reality TV crew, and play daily televised pickup basketball games. I'll go first because if somebody had a chance of hearing this being true or not, it'd be Dave. I'm going to say bullshit. I didn't hear anything about this. Yeah, I'm saying bullshit too. I, I that has not landed on my radar at all. That is complete fabrication. Although I would pay 
probably $5.99 a month to watch a channel that was just Allen Iverson in a resort getting deliveries of his wardrobe once a week and having to play against Patrick Ewing in a pickup game. Um, yeah, I'd totally be down with that. That, I think, would be excellent TV, certainly more interesting than Horse. Um, and, I, I, and the matchup I would actually want to see would be AI and uh, Ty Lu. Yes! Nah. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Let's make it happen, NBA. Uh, and last but not least, uh, I don't know if a lot of people are considering that maybe the NFL might be in jeopardy, although this certainly is something that um, you know is possible. The NFL has already began putting together a contingency plan for playing their complete season. One plan includes the construction of 15 regulation-sized fields in an isolated, completely free of the coronavirus location that would allow for the entire planned television schedule to be completed without any fans. Uh, Dave, do you want to go first on that one or second? Sure. I, I actually haven't heard this. However, I will say that it, if anyone has the 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 money or the the will to do it, it would be the NFL. The thing that I'm questioning is where is the completely coronavirus free area? Uh, potentially the moon. Um, <laughs> but fuck it, I'll say true. Damn it, I was gonna say true as well because it did seem like the uh, NFL is hubris, but this is the tiebreaker, so I'm gonna say bullshit. Um, but I think actually the coronavirus free location sounds so nfl like like it's like like no no we'll go someplace that doesn't have it uh there, there's nowhere that doesn't have it no no we'll find a place so i'm gonna say bullshit but i think you're right there well you're it is true in the sense that this is something that is being reported this was mike florio's of pro football talk suggestion um and he's calling it the NFL in a bubble. And by uh, completely coronavirus free, what he's saying is that in order for you to get into this uh, undisclosed as of yet location, you would have to uh, pass your um, pass a series of medical tests before you are let into said bubble. And then once mm. you are in it, you're not allowed to leave. Yeah, um, I mean, that makes sense. I think there's enough money attached to it that it, it yeah. would make it worthwhile. So I'll, I'll read I'll read what he – this is reported in USA Today. Uh, As social distancing drags deeper and deeper into football's offseason, Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk said, the NFL might need to be prepared for a scenario in which all the league's 32 teams convene in an isolated facility certified to be free of the coronavirus with everyone entering being tested. That would allow for the full televised schedule. Notice how he specifically said the full televised schedule because screw <laughs> you people that want to watch it live. Uh, that would allow for the full televised schedule to be played without fans in attendance. Such a facility would need at least 15 regulation size fields and a whole lot of training facilities for each individual team. That would be a logistical nightmare, nightmare, but not altogether out of the question. To me, it really sounds like the NFL is going to try to play their season at the North Pole and get some real synergy, you know, coming up to Christmas time. And I'd watch that. You know, I think uh, Santa Claus and uh, Annie Reed have a lot in common, <laughs> unfortunately. So um, you mean they're both... in the same room together. Just saying. <laughs> I was yeah. going to say, you mean they both look great in red? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's what I don't I'm saying. Know. I, I feel like the games without fans is tough. I'm actually having a great time watching old games, but you have to watch them in sort of a different way. It's a little bit more of a 
I don't know, historical appreciation or um, looking at things in a, a different perspective. I, I would really like to see, and, and you know, I saw on um, Comcast the, uh, the the TV crew, so like T Mac and the gang were calling a MLB the Show uh, broadcast the other day, which is very strange. Um, but I would really like to see some of these, some more of these classic games fucking played in their goddamn entirety. Yeah. Uh, stop editing out innings. If you're going to show a classic game, just show it, um, broadcasted, you know, announced, or at least including some commentary from the players that played in the game. Like, you know, that's what I was thinking when I was watching this, uh, NLCS game, how great would it be to have crook call this game? Yeah. And, and talk about his experience from playing in it or, or, you know. or, or have Dave Hollins. Like this would be the moment to ring up Dave Hollins, you know, and be like, Hey, What's Dave, he doing? He, probably nothing. Um, you know, none of us are doing anything. Exactly. Have David West call the game. Is he still alive? <laughs> <laughs> but like, Dyche's not doing anything. I don't know if you want to hear Dykstra talk. I do. I, <laughs> oh, do. I do. I do. Give me three hours of Dykstra, man. ESPN had the 1988 World Series on the other day with the Gibson Hour. I want to hear Canseco talk about that game. I don't know. And, and I just think it's a cool thing. Here's the thing I miss most uh, about sports right now, and it's specifically baseball, is it represents the changing of the seasons. You know, I spent a lot of time outdoors the past couple of days with my kids, and I had music on. I wanted a damn baseball game on. And I don't even care if it's a classic game. It doesn't need to be a game. Just one I don't remember the score to. And just put on a game so I can have background noise of baseball when I'm doing outdoor activities in the nice weather. I'll tell you, the, the, the thing that was interesting to me was this is the week that the NBA playoffs would have been starting. And... I, I really do miss that little endorphin rush I, I you know, I would get from from a great win. And, yeah. you know, to a certain degree, the agony of waiting a whole day for a playoff game to start. Yeah, it's the NHL, the first round of their playoffs would be wrapping up about now. And... You know, with the trajectory we were on, it was probably going to be Flyers-Penguins, and the Flyers probably would have beat the damn Penguins. You know, think of that. Think of if we were doing this show right now and we're able to talk about, you know, Flyers-Penguins game six tomorrow or the Flyers beat the Penguins and went to the second round for the first time since 2012. You know, that was painful on April 8th when the NHL playoffs were set to begin. That was like, yeah, I could be watching playoff hockey right now. And even when the Flyers aren't in it, I fucking love playoff hockey. Um, The more day in, day out is not having baseball as the soundtrack of nice weather. For me, that has always been. I will throw a game on between two random teams just have baseball as the the background noise. And and this is certainly a conversation for another day, and maybe this is just going to be a teaser for next week. But 
I can't wait to start when when things begin to normalize to start to find out and baseball this is is going to be more than anything else to find out what agents and lawyers are going to be able to figure out what this means for like service time like that is yeah. going to be like the cluster of all clusters uh, is trying to figure out how who in the who in God's name is a rookie anymore um, you know. <laughs> The big winner out of all of this, if there is a winner in anywhere in the world, um, I'm going to say it. I, I think the the only person maybe winning out of any of this is Gabe Kapler because he has gotten to stay in a job. There's a chance that he might have been so horrible in San Francisco, they might have fired him by now. <laughs> and I think that coconut oil really serves to keep the viruses out. Like, Ooh. Corona cannot get in. It just slides off him into, like, the person next to him. So, uh, moral of the story: Do not stand next to Gabe Kapler. Listen, when you when you when you're <laughs> when you have the coconut oil and and you know your interests are being pulled in all sorts of directions, you're not going to get coronavirus. You're, you're in good shape. <laughs> That's all the time we have for today. We'll be back with you next Monday when we're going to uh, talk about a new classic rewatch that that, that we saw over the week. Um, if you haven't done so already, uh, be sure to rate review and subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Also check us out on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search Potadelphia. Uh, also be sure to check out our sister show, the whip around, which Chuck, you'll be making an appearance this week, right? I will be, um, my first appearance on the whip around. Um, I'm going to be talking about a, a classic hockey game between, uh, the Quebec Nordiques and the Montreal Canadiens. I'm talking about the Good Friday Massacre. And uh, check it out. Um, I go into length about a uh, bloody chapter in French-Canadian history. Nice. All right. Well, make sure you check that out. Um, and until then, uh, have a great day at working from home, everybody. <laughs> Stay safe. Wash your hands. And moisturize those hands, too. They need it. We're out of here. <laughs>